Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast. In this episode, I talk to world-renowned biologist David Sinclair about aging and longevity. David rejects the notion that the deterioration of health is a natural part of growing old and asserts that aging is a disease itself that we need to reverse. In this episode, we explore how a reset of our biological clocks could affect our interactions, responses to adversity, morality, and how we live our lives. We also discuss the ethical implications of limitless lifespans and touch on the topics of death, evolution, genetics, medicine, and data tracking. This was a deeply personal episode as well as a highly scientific episode. I think you can really see David's humanity in this episode and his high ambitions to advance the human species. This was a really fascinating chat for me, and I think David's research has enormous implications for every single human on this planet. So without further ado, I bring you David Sinclair. Dr. Sinclair, so great to chat with you today. Well, Scott, it's a real pleasure. Uh, I've followed you for for many years, and uh, it's great to finally meet you. Yeah, it really is great. And I know we're going to have so much fun jamming on the intersections between the brain, mind, and longevity today. So I've been really looking forward to this chat. I want to start off by asking you, how old do you feel inside? Gee, mentally, uh, I feel about somewhere between 6 and 12. The six-year-old in me still wonders about the world, and I see the world with that kind of wonder. I have the ability to see things like I haven't seen them before, which is a good thing if you're a dreamer and a scientist and an entrepreneur. I've got a 12-year-old in me because I actually now realize that life is serious, um, and those 12-year-olds at that point have realized that. Physically, I haven't changed uh, since I was 20. In fact, somebody said uh, my my father actually told me my, my body looks better than it did when I was 20, so I'm happy about that. Um, so all in, all in all, I, I'm not feeling the effects of aging at all yet, uh, cognitively. In fact, I feel more energetic and smarter, way smarter and able to focus than I did uh, any other, than any other time in my life. 
Yeah, there was a certain sticky beak personality you had as a child. Can you explain to our audience what a sticky beak is? Because our Australian audience will know what that means, but our, our non-Australian audience, can you explain what that means? And, you know, it, it seems like you still have have that in, in abundance. Well, it, it's curiosity, but beyond your usual curiosity. I have to know how things work. And so I stick my nose into things. And so sticky beak comes from an Australian term for someone who just can't keep their nose out of other people's business. And literally, there are birds that stick their beak into things. Um, we had these, I still have magpies. Um, they're called currawongs in Sydney. And they stick their beak into bottles. Um, when I was a kid, we used to still get milk delivered in glass bottles with foil lids. And they would stick their beak into the milk and drink the milk. So you'd come out and uh, you know, be fairly uh, messed with um, by the birds. But that's what I am. I, I cannot avoid opening things up, seeing how they work. Um, it's often a challenge to put these things back together, as I found out when I pulled apart a couple of cars as a teenager. Um, but I'm getting better at it. Um, and even now, when we talk about biology in my lab, we're getting pretty good at fixing damaged organs and tissues, such as the eye, able to regenerate those. So I'm making up for all the, the bugs that I pulled apart as a child, I think. Mm. Yeah, this this is always fascinating to me. You know, when I, I study uh, the lives of creative people, uh, people who make the history books, and there's this very common thread among them. They were they were dreamers. They were daydreamers when they were a child, and they also like to take things apart um, when they were children. Also, serial killers as children uh, had that uh, characteristic as well. <laughs> so there seems to be, you know, it's like a non-overlapping Venn diagram. You know, like there's like parts of the Venn diagram that you <laughs> don't share with your cars, but that you do. A yeah. fine line, right? <laughs> but um, this just ravenous curiosity. I had to say that as a psychologist, you know, that's, that's, <laughs> that's true too. But, but yeah, creative people, there's a fine line between creativity and madness. I mean, there, there actually is a fine line there in, in, to a certain degree, um, as I found in my own research, you know, like really creative people, uh, often people will think they are mad or that their, their imaginations and, um, and grandiose ideas of the future are, are crazy until they actually make it a reality and then people call them a genius. That's just a very common common theme across uh, lots of creative people. You know, as you were a child, I was wondering how your grandmother inspired you. It was very very touching. This uh, this uh, poem by Alan Alexander Milne. Yeah, this poem. Now we are six. Um, that was read to you as a child. Uh, but now I am six. I'm as clever as clever. So I think I'll be six now, forever and ever. It's 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 a beautiful poem. And uh, I was just wondering how your grandmother inspired you as a child. Yeah, I have to be careful here because I have a tendency to, to get teary-eyed when I talk about this. Um, so this is a person that essentially raised me. My mother was working full-time, both biochemists as parents. Um, and this is a woman who lived through the Depression as a kid and then World War II in her 30s um, and had my father, gave birth to my father when she was 15. and. Uh, he was taken away from her to be raised by uh, my grandmother's uh, mother-in-law. And this was traumatizing for her, both experiencing World War and the aftermath of that in Hungary when she was in Budapest and having her child taken away. Uh, you know, I come along when she's in her early 40s and now she's just saying, okay, I have to pour all my love and knowledge into this one child. And, uh, and she did. 
But she also said, uh, I have to use what I've been given uh, to make humanity better than it was in the 20th century. Humanity can do better than this. Capable of great evil, but also great, wonderful, uh, inspiring things that if there were a species looking at us from above um, or a deity, they would be impressed with what we could do. And so I, that meant a lot. I, I basically have spent most of my life, uh, if not uh, since the, I was four years old, trying to live up to what my grandmother had told me to do with my life. Um, and, you know, I think of her, of her every day. She was a very unusual person. She was a philosopher, uh, a great thinker. Um, she couldn't handle small talk. She only wanted to talk about the universe and philosophy. Um, and that's what I was raised on. Uh, and that, that was the basis of really how I got here today. Do you remember some of your early childhood fantasies and dreams? I think you mentioned one point that you used to pretend that you were giving a large lecture or something. And <laughs> I, I used to do that too. As a ch I related a lot, by the way. I related a lot to a lot of the things you said in a lot of your fan early fantasies. Yeah. I don't want to come across as, as being a, an egomaniac because I was a very <laughs> shy child. Yeah. I, I have two personalities. A lot of us do. My childhood, I was very insecure for a number of reasons. One, I, one, I wasn't very tall. I was put in school at the age of just when I was four and other kids were five or six years old at that point. So I was a couple of years behind some of them. But cognitively, I was you know, different. I remember thinking that. And I spent probably up until college just being frustrated because people would treat me as though I was dumber than I actually was. I remember being five and being talked to like a five-year-old. I was like, what are you talking about? I know more about this topic than you do, kind of that kind of arrogance. But, but it, was, it, was, it was annoying and I really grew to dislike humanity because I was treated that way. I thought humans were horrible. Um, you know, a lot of kids look at parents and they don't think much of them, to be fair. So that was, that was me. I, I used to cry when people gave me comp compliments about my long eyelashes because I thought they were telling me I was a girl. You know, that kind of silliness. Um, fortunately, I, I grew out of that uh, by the time I hit college, got some confidence, found that I had this other personality, which was if you give me a topic to talk about uh, and put me in front of a lectern or on a stage, then I'm somebody very different. Then I love talking and I have no inhibition. Um, I, I hear a lot of comedians are like that as well. Um, and so I've, I've worked very hard in my adult life to suppress the shy child who's insecure um, and just work on being this other person. And so far, so good. Um, but there are days when I revert back to being that shy young kid um, who can barely talk to, to girls. Yeah, I'm constantly oscillating between those two states myself on a daily basis. No, I, I definitely, I definitely can relate a lot to that. But there's also just, um, you know, it's, it's such a beautiful thing when you're given an opportunity to talk about something that you're so passionate about. So I, I'm giving you that opportunity today, brother, you know, and I hope you, I hope you enjoy it. And, uh, and I know our listeners will enjoy it. You know, you did say that from a very young age, you were tormented by the idea that, you know, death is inevitable and irreversible. So it sounds like you did think a lot about death as a kid. I certainly don't want to say anything that, that too emotional, but I, I thought it was quite poignant that you were, you were there at your mother's death. And, and I was wondering if you feel comfortable talking about that at all. And then maybe just how it affected your own sort of 
cognitions about death? How did that affect that, uh, who you are today? Yeah, these are great questions. Um, so one thing I don't want to forget to say uh, is that my grandmother told me at the age of four that everything dies, that my cat would die, which was horrific enough, that she would die, my parents would die, I would die, everything dies. And it's often painful. And my grandmother was like that. She never lied. She never, I never lied. This is what we believe in. Um, but often it's brutal truth. And most kids forget about that because it's t- tormenting. And I haven't been able to get that out of my mind, how cruel it is to be a conscious being with the knowledge of what's going to happen to your friends and family and yourself. So that, that was a driver for a lot of my life still is. Then when I had the experience of seeing my mother pass away, that was transformational as well because I'd never experienced death up close. You go to funerals, but you don't know, really know what the process is like. So my mother uh, developed lung cancer when uh, she was my age, and I was just coming to MIT from Australia. And there was a big question whether I should come to, a, to the United States at all because I needed to look after my mother. Uh, she had a big tumor in one lung. She had a lung taken out. It was a, quite a, a serious operation. And I figured I may not see her again if I go to America. And my supervisor, who was there in Sydney for my PhD, said, you've got a bright future ahead of you. You have to go. You cannot let this hold you back. And so I I did that. And I'm glad I did because my mother lived for another 20 years and got to see five grandkids and travel the world. But on the day of her passing, which was uh, a few years ago now, uh, her last remaining lung, her one remaining lung, had given out and it was filling up with fluid unbeknownst to any of us. And I'd flown to Australia and I wrote a eulogy for her expecting to get there uh, too late. And uh, I got to the hospital and she was there smiling, sitting up in the bed. And my father and my brother were there. And I thought, oh, you know, this false alarm. And I made a joke to her that I had written her eulogy and I would like to read it to her because I thought she'd find it funny. But it was only probably two minutes later that she started coughing and suddenly couldn't breathe and literally choked to death, suffocated in front of us. And uh, we only had time to say our last words in those last seconds. Uh, And I remember leaning in and she was starting to turn blue and choking. It was a horrible sight. And I, I whispered into her ear that I wanted to thank her for being the best mother I could ever have. Uh, and then that was it. Then she's basically gone. And then you just in shock. But what it left me with permanently was the realization that that's a bad day. Everything else that's a problem is not an issue. So every day now when people say I have a problem or I have a problem, you know, it's always nobody died. So don't worry about the scratch in your car. It's going to be okay. I just lost money. It's okay. But it also showed me the brutality of, of death, that there are very few cases where somebody dies peacefully in their sleep. Um, and we, we're not prepared for that. We're not told that. And I kept thinking, why doesn't somebody tell us what it's like? And I think we're just shielded from that until we have to, unfortunately, experience it in person. I, as a child, I was, I was very just constantly just fascinated. And I think tormented is a good word for it, for the idea. And it's still mind boggling to me. The idea that at one moment we can be alive with such potential, you know, and, uh, you know, self-actualization potential. And then in a split second, for the rest of eternity, it's all wiped out, you know, all of our memories, everything, forever. And, you know, it, it, especially if you don't have a large family, like I'm an only child and very close to my parents, but they're getting very older. And I think 
my gosh, when they're gone, you know, there's not going to be many other people around that are going to, well, no one else that has all those childhood memories, you know, that we all share together, you know, and then when I'm gone, all that will be gone forever. It's a very sobering realization when you really think about the truth of the matter. You know, when you face it head on, psychologists often talk about the best way to overcome fear of death is is to face it head on. How have you made, or if you have kind of made brutal uh, realities as well as the beautiful realities as well, it's, it's double-edged sword in a way. Uh, of death itself, you mean? Or of living? Yeah, when you, yeah, great question. So just this idea, as you talk about in your book, about how in that moment of death, all of these things are wiped away, you know, what is the... How have you made peace or, or even thought yourself the importance and the meaning of, of life itself, knowing that fact of death? Well, that, that, that's um, what drives me is, is the knowledge that we have a certain amount of time on the planet. Now, I don't mean to say that if life was longer, it would be less meaningful or urgent. I still think if I had a thousand years of life, that's only 50 times what I've lived already. That would go by uh, uh, 20 times, sorry. Uh, that would go by in a blink of an eye. Uh, so it's it's more just the knowledge that one day it will end, not how close it is that drives me. Um, and I, I'm driven by the, the the concern that I that I will not leave an impact. So that this is what gets me up in the morning and and work and I work till midnight often. It's the idea that I have a certain amount of time, whatever that is whether it's you know, 80, 100, even 150 years, whatever it is, um, to make this world better and leave it different than how I found it. And, uh, you know, just trying to bend the needle a little bit of human history just so that, you know, maybe it's that I, that I fear that I might be forgotten. You know, this is like you said, things vanish. Your photos get thrown out. And mementos that you think are important, your great grandkids, even your kids will throw them out in the trash. What is going to last? What is going to be around in a thousand years? Or maybe if I make a discovery or I change the course of human history a little bit, then I'll have made a difference. And it, it, maybe that's it. You know, I've never vocalized this, but it could be the fear of being forgotten that, that makes me do what I do as well. So, you know, to be honest about what selfish reasons there are, besides really the altruistic fact that I do want humanity to, to show that we're better than we were. Absolutely. Uh, and, and I really want to get, uh, you know, wrap my head around what the fear is there. It doesn't sound like the fear is death. The fear is not having fully lived while you're alive. It feels like that's what people really fear. They kind of, in their head, they, they frame it as a fear of death. But with you, it sounds like there's maybe a fear of, of not, you know, fully making the full impact that you have the potential to make. Um, and uh, is that, does that sound about right? That's definitely right. Um, and, but, but it's interesting that I've achieved more in my lifetime than I thought I would. I've lived a better life than I thought I would. Um, so that actually gives me a lot of comfort around death. I'm not afraid of death because I've already done more than I thought I would. I've seen more change. I've made more discoveries than I thought I would. Um, and it's really true. I, I don't fear death and I've faced death many times. And I know that it doesn't scare me. I've had planes that were going down and planes that almost crashed and car, you know, my car, if you've ever seen me drive, you know, I'm not afraid of death. Um, so that that's not the issue. And, and uh, at all, you'd be surprised how little I fear death. It's really what you said, which is a fear of not realizing my potential. 
and my potential is growing. I've never been in such a strong position to affect uh, medicine and human health and education than I have been you know, at this year of uh, 52 cycles of the earth around the sun. So you know, my real age hopefully is a bit younger than that biologically. But yeah, I, I, I seem to be either peaking or, or reaching my peak in, in my ability to change uh, the way the world is for the future and perhaps forever. Um, and that, that is comforting. Um, but I would hate to die today because it, it really would be a waste of the foundation that I've worked on ever since I was age four. And by the way, you do look about six years old. <laughs> now, people, people always say, I, I always look about 10 years younger than I am, by the way. It's all, it's a comp, it's like a phenomenon. Every, you do look young. It's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's, I don't, I was wondering, can you explain to me what's going on? Is it because my epigenetic? Yeah. Right. So we, uh, in my lab and, and some other labs in the world have come to the conclusion that a major cause of aging is your epigenome, which are the instructions that read your DNA that get messed up over time. And we can actually read that clock. Uh, we have a test in my lab. We're hoping to uh, put this out uh, for everybody. A bit of self-promotion. You can sign up for this biological test at drsinclair.com. Spell out the word doctor. Um, and we're going to bring this test to everybody. So we can literally, you can send in a mouth swab, Scott, and we will tell you biologically if your clock is ticking slower or faster than others, just from a mouth swab, not, not even a blood test. But I, I would suspect that the reason you look young is because you are young. Um, I know I'm young. My, my blood tests come back in my mid to early 40s, depending on which test I take. And I'm 52. I have no gray hair. I haven't lost my hair. Uh, there's no sign of wrinkles. I mean, people often get bags under their eyes at my age, and they haven't appeared yet. So I think that it is possible that you and I are, are on a track to live much longer and healthier than others who have, say, not looked after themselves. The good news is for everybody uh, is that, first of all, it's never too late to change. The second important part is that how you live your lifestyle, how you eat, when you eat, what you eat, exercise, good sleep, at a minimum, you know, forget about the supplements that I often talk about, that is enough to get you another 15 years of healthy life. And that's because the epigenome, as compared to your genome, is 80% of what determines your future health. So don't panic. Uh, but I would say it's in your hands. And if, if you don't do something, you know, you're, you're on track, uh, on a very straight line track to dying at a certain age that I can actually predict with this test. But that what we've got to do is then give, give people the knowledge to slow down and we think even reverse that biological age. Wouldn't it be awkward though if you're like 80 years old uh, chronologically, but you're inner, you look like you're 30, and so like women are like hitting on you? Do you know what I mean? They think you're thir like 30 year olds are hitting on you, but then you're like, look, I'm actually 80, you know, and then it's awkward when you reveal that information. I mean, people have like, it's funny because people, I mean, people have very standard. I know my question sounds cheeky, but there's actually a deep philosophical point here I'm trying to make. People have a very, um, you know, they, they treat people based on their chronological age. They don't treat people based on many other factors of how they could treat someone, you know, you know, even if like their inner age or their inner spirit or their playfulness, you know. And I wonder if this research eventually is going to make us kind of look at chronological age differently, maybe not 
make that such a, that number so prominent in our own mental schemas, our psychological schemas of what that person could be and their potential. Because we, we have a bias against older people, you know, in terms of what we think their self-actualization potential is. We, you know, old people, uh, people over the age of 70, and I've, I've, I've looked at research into this, are very often very depressed because uh, the younger, younger people shut them out of society. You know, so I am I am wondering to what extent this research can actually make us um, have more inclusion of, of people of all ages, if that makes sense in society. It does make sense. Uh, and I think that how you look is, is more important than your actual age when it comes to partnering up. I know that I get often treated like I'm in my 30s, um, especially by people who don't don't yet know me well. But I would think that what's probably going to happen is if you're 17, you look 30, and that, that will happen. It's not a question of if, it's just a question of when. Then you'll want to find people your own age who also look 30. Uh, and you know, I, I'm doing that myself with, with looking at people my age. There are a lot of people that, that still look young. The question, though, is um, you, you'll want to have shared, at least I prefer to have shared experiences. So if, let's say I look 20, I don't, but if I look 20, would a 20-year-old be attracted to me? I, I actually, I don't know the answer to that. I'm not going to try. But the the issue is, are, are you generationally different? Are you, you know, you start talking about uh, the movies you saw as a child or whatever. Is it is it too different? Would you be would you prefer to be somebody who's actually been around for as long as you have? I think you probably would. Actually, Scott, I need to go blow my nose. Can I oh, come yeah, back? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I've never done an interview like this. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's different. Oh, it's in what way? Uh, I don't know. It's, I've got a very, I've not got an unusual mind in my head. I'm constantly pretending to be normal, but I'm totally way out of there, uh, way out there. So it's interesting for me also to hear my answers. So uh, I haven't been asked these questions before. I think it's going to be it's going to be interesting for other people to see what goes on inside my head. There's a lot of strange stuff. Um, the uh, I guess we're off off record, but as a kid, I I had no doubt that I would be in this this position. I mean, how crazy is that? It could have failed a million times, but I guess if you set your sights, uh, you end up where you you want to be. But you know, a kid from Australia. Do you want to talk? Sure, we can talk about that if you don't, if you don't think it sounds like I'm crazy lunatic but it can come across that way i can keep this part it's actually really interesting because this is the psychology podcast after all <laughs> i'm happy to keep this you know there's something there there's there's some seeds and uh this has been studied in the creativity literature to be a very common thing you know yoyama's not shy to admit that when he was about three and he heard a cello he was like wow i want to play cello you know uh, jacqueline dupre when she heard the cello on the christmas bbc christmas recording when she was very very young she said i want to do that there's, there's something, there's something there. Right. Well, I think you have to be crazy to be a kid in Sydney, Australia, who dreams of changing the world. It's, it's very unlikely. So you've got to be, you've got to be a bit delusional. But uh, yes, so I, there are remnants of, of, of me still in existence. Uh, I wrote down the 10 ways I could be a millionaire by the age of 30. I wrote down a bunch of inventions. I started a company in my garage making furniture. I was trying to figure out a way that everybody could give me, everyone in the world could just give me $1. That's all I needed. How hard could that be? Uh, I, and I wrote down one of my ideas was a network 
of computers that could uh, act as a gar- garage sale, we call it a yard sale. You know, now it's eBay. Uh, so this is the kind of thing that I was trying to invent that would get me to a place where I could could really make a difference in the world. I, mean, I definitely am not a money seeker. I don't have a lot of material goods, but I, I'm, I'm not dumb enough to realize that money is a way to influence the world. Um, and that's, I prefer to have money in my, my bank account and put it on things that I know are important than have somebody buy giant yachts and waste the money. Well, I think that you just realized at a young age that what it would take to make an impact in the world and you realized much younger than a lot of people realized that uh, you wanted to make an impact in a, in a very mature way, not the sort of uh, way that the average six-year-old wants to buy, I'm going to be an astronaut someday, or I'm going to you know, be a fairy princess. <laughs> you actually, you know, you actually, you know, started to, to, to think about that at a younger age, about what that would actually take. Yeah. Well, what, what really happened to me was that I was, people were writing down the things I was saying, about lists of things I used to say that were outrageous and, and well beyond my years, uh, vocabulary and whatever. And so I grew up thinking that I was special anyway. You know, so I, I try not to do that because it's not good being an adult thinking that you're special. Uh, but that, that certainly helped me think that I could actually do what I've done in my life. Well, let's, let's talk, let's talk a little about what you're, what you're up to scientifically these days. Um, unless you want to still talk about your childhood, <laughs> in which case I'm, I'm down. <laughs> I'm down for anything. We can move on. <laughs> okay. I'm down with for anything. I, I tend to try to just be really authentic and just uh, free flowing in these conversations. So I'm down, whatever comes up. But I wanted, I wanted to tell you about this funny New Yorker caption, uh, cartoon I saw. I don't know if you've seen this New Yorker cartoon where two guys are sitting at a bar and one guy says to the other one, see, the problem with doing things to prolong your life is that all the extra years come at the end when you're old. Have you ever seen that cartoon? <laughs> I have. Yeah, and it's it's dead wrong. Uh, it, that's the that's the problem. Exactly, exactly. That's why I wanted to bring that up. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to think of like a funny way to have an entry point into you explaining to all of us why that is a really misguided way of looking at things. Mm-hmm. Right. So the the science that we have, um, just to summarize, is in my in my lab we have really no trouble driving aging forwards and backwards. It's quite malleable now. Uh, we do this in mice mainly, but we can do it in human cells. We can grow mini brains in the lab and we're driving aging all, in all directions. So that, that's the exciting part. But what, what I want everybody to know is that we're not talking about extending the last years of life. We're talking about preserving the healthy years of life. And as a side effect, you get longevity. And I don't know how to make anybody live longer without keeping them healthy. In fact, the goal is to keep them healthy. And the root cause of Almost all diseases that we will get uh, is aging itself. And we've been, unfortunately, ignoring them, the 80 to 90% main, major cause of illness on the planet uh, up until recently. That is, it's changing very rapidly. Um, and so we were sticking Band-Aids on these diseases, diabetes, heart disease, even cancer. And what we've realized is if you keep the body young or even reverse the age of the body, which we can now do in the lab, uh, that those diseases either don't occur or just go away. The body can heal itself. And that's the future of medicine in the 21st century. Um, so I think we're, if you fast forward to the future of the year 2050, they're going to look back at today uh, with disgust. And the same way we do at the Middle Ages where 
nobody would want to go back there. The idea that you would just let your body naturally age is, is craziness. In fact, I'm, I'm one of the thing, the things that I put in my book is that aging is a medical condition and, and that it's treatable. And when we have that mindset, then it, it really just changes the way we should look at the research, the development of drugs and the way we treat patients as well. Because what I cannot stand is when doctors say to their patients and to me as well, well, it's okay that you're getting old. It's okay that you're getting sick. It's okay that you can't see anymore because you're just old. Well, you don't say that with other diseases. So why should we put up with it with aging? We're not talking about living forever. That's not the point, but it is about increasing people's health far more and for far more holistically than we have with 20th century approaches. Yeah. You say the world is about to change. Indeed, it is a time in which we will redefine what it means to be human for this is not just the start of a revolution it's the start of an evolution. I want to talk to you about that as someone who studies uh, what it means to be human. Um, I thought we could maybe have a nice synergy here in this kind of conversation. You know, from my perspective, what makes us human is our unique brain wiring, you know, and I, I think you probably would agree to a certain extent and what emerges from, well, not just the brain wiring itself, but the, the kind of consciousness that emerges from it, the, the self-reflection and the, the self-control and the, the ability to work out morality, the ability to have a character. You know, turtles don't really have much individual differences in their character structure. You know, but humans differ widely in that. I am very curious to what extent you think what what you mean by that. What how it read? First of all, let me just ask you what you mean by it's. It'll redefine what it means to be human, and then I thought we could riff off that a little bit. Right. Uh, so that's actually the launch pad to the book that I'm writing right now. Amazing! Uh, I didn't know that. That's like exciting. Princeton, so, wow. so yeah, yeah. Get me wow. get me writing, and I can't stop. So the, the idea is that that we we need we now need to take evolution into our own hands. We've, we've done as well as we could as, as a species that's come off the savannah recently, uh, but we still have all that, all that baggage. We, we only live 50 years in good health, 60 years if you're lucky um, under good circumstances because we didn't need to build bodies that lived longer than that. Most people would die before that, either from war, predation, starvation, dehydration. And so our, our bodies are, uh, are built for the savannah going back 2 million years, uh, at, at best 500,000 years. And we haven't changed much really since then, um, structurally. Uh, mentally, we have, of course. But the, the, the real problem is that we've built this world technologically thanks to our ability to make tools, tell stories, uh, agree socially, manipulate each other, uh, explore. These are all things that make us uniquely human. They've built this world around us. And I'm sitting here in this, this beautiful air-conditioned house, there are cars outside. It's totally artificial and it's, it's great, but it's also killing us. We sit all day often, but we don't exercise. We eat too, way too much food. We eat the wrong foods. The internet uh, makes us mentally, uh, uh, well, I, I don't know, you give me the word, but mental health issues are, are exploding in part because of social media. What, what I'm trying to say is that evolution is too slow to get us out of what we've built. We now need to engineer our way out. We need to take our own evolution into our own hands and not just change our own environment to suit our bodies, but also change our bodies to suit the environment that we've built around us. And that way we won't be suffering from all of these illnesses and, uh, and short lives that we've really constructed for ourselves. 
an interesting observation is that when we were on the savannas or you know, go back even just 10,000 years ago, we were typically cold and hungry. And we call this, I call this the metabolic winter hypothesis with Ray Cronus. Nowadays, we're barely ever cold. Um, we're barely ever hungry. And our bodies become complacent. We have these genes in our bodies that protect us against aging, including our brain. And when there's complacency in our bodies, they don't defend against diseases and aging. So we believe now, and there's a lot of evidence, that the genes that we work on and co-discovered are a large part of the reason why exercise, being a bit hungry, being a bit cold, being a bit too hot, is the reason that we get these long-term health benefits and can actually slow down aging. Wow. Well, you know, I've been trying to sort through this very vast literature. You, you, you literally have a front row seat to the most cutting edge scientific findings. I could bring up stuff, um, you know, like, 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 you know, SIR2, like, where are we at with SIR2 right now? <laughs> like, like, and, and activating that in humans. I know that you, you, sure. uh, you said somewhere in the next two years, you're going to start control trial. You're going to start trials on humans. Is that right? Uh, we've been doing them for two and a half years already. Uh, mm -hmm. with the NAD boosters. Um, and there have been a number of clinical trials with molecules that activate sirtuins over the last 10 years, uh, many of which have worked, some not for reasons that are technical and um, include the, the problem that these molecules are insoluble generally. But yeah, we, we have trials that are ongoing. Uh, there's a company called Metro Biotech that I co-founded a decade ago that's been working on this, making chemicals that mimic the body's natural production of NAD, which is what is the fuel for the sirtuins that defend our bodies. So instead of exercising or, uh, or going hungry, uh, you can take these molecules and we see that they mimic the benefits in animal studies and we hope will be the case for humans. And the good news though, is that if you have a healthy diet, healthy lifestyle, and you take these molecules, the science says that there will be added benefits as well. But you can't expect the elderly to go run a marathon or go hungry too often. So you need these drugs as well. Um, so, so far, we know that they're, or at least the evidence says that they're very safe. Uh, they're just taken as a pill. That's a hard-pressed pill. And uh, yeah, so we've tested in young people, old people, athletes. Uh, and now we're looking at what are, the, what are the effects? Now, the effects that we see in mice are rejuvenation of many tissues. Um, for example, the cardiovascular system. Uh, rejuvenates, responds to exercise. You get new blood flow in, in muscle tissue, growth of capillaries or capillaries, depending on how you say it. And then those mice can run 50% further like they were young again in just four weeks of taking this one molecule called NMN, uh, which, by the way, is the, the same molecule I've been taking for many years now. Now, in, in the human studies, we're looking for those same effects, and we're in the middle of, of those trials right now. And so we should know the results uh, sometime around the middle of next year, perhaps earlier. Um, and then you know, if we're lucky, then I'll be able to say, yeah, it looks like they work. And then it's a question of getting those drugs on the market because the idea is not to sell them as supplements, which is the Wild West and not controlled, but to actually prove that they work, which takes time and money, a lot of time, a lot of money. But ultimately, the drugs could save many, many lives if, and, and ultimately be like a heart disease drug where millions of people can take it. Um, and extend their healthy lifespan as well. But initially, importantly, we cannot treat aging yet. We cannot get a drug for aging because it's not considered a disease by the government. And until that happens, we have to work on individual diseases such as frailty, 
Um, and there's one disease that we're targeting called Friedrich's ataxia, which is a, a genetic disorder um, that results in people in their early stages of life, 20s, 30s, being wheelchair bound. And so hopefully if it works in those patients, then it will expand from there. I'm very interested in Alzheimer's. It's obviously a very hot um, area of uh, people putting a lot of money into research on that. Um, you said that you had taken some uh, mice who have learned something when young but forgotten it, and you were able to rejuvenate their brain in such a way to exist cells where they got the memories back. Is Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. Uh, we it's incredible. Now have the... Yeah, it does sound incredible when, when you put it that way. But in my lab, it's just what we do. We, we just... We like to say we, we we make the impossible possible. That was like that was like your version of Beyonce's <laughs> "I Woke Up This Way." <laughs> it's like that's just what we do. <laughs> it's awesome. I love it. It is. It's, it is. It is normal uh, in 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 the daily workings of the lab. We have to kick ourselves sometimes to remind ourselves. But yeah. But so what we can do is we can drive aging forwards in a mouse, or just wow. let time take its course. But we can accelerate aging because we now understand what we think we understand what drives the process. And we've built mice that we can turn on aging more rapidly. Um, and that, that speeds up research. Um, it's not, we don't do this for fun, of course. It also tells us that we're probably right about the aging process. And then we also engineer the mice so that we can turn on our reprogramming system that reverses aging in the brain specifically. Now, the paper that we published on the cover of Nature in December 2020 was reversing the age of the eye. And we targeted the optic nerve and we rejuvenated and reversed the age of the optic nerve. And those old blind mice could see again. So curing blindness was just the beginning. We've now moved on into the whole brain and we've targeted uh, uh, the neurons in, in that system. And yes, what you said is correct. We can seemingly reverse the age of those brains and the mice can learn again. Now, we're not exactly sure if their memories come back again. That will require a different set of experiments that we're going to do. Uh, but we do know for sure that both in those accelerated aging mice and naturally aged mice, we can rejuvenate their ability to learn. Now, the question that we're going to answer next is, can you treat an Alzheimer's defective brain? And does that restore the ability to function again? And do the plaques and tangles and all the other crud that goes with the disease, do they go away as well? And my bet, my hypothesis, as we should call it, uh, is that the brain will actually become younger and look younger as well. And that's what we saw with the eye. You couldn't tell the difference between the treated old eye that was rejuvenated and the function and structure of a young eye. So it, it all goes back and all the crud and the bad stuff with aging vanishes. And hopefully that's true in our brain experiments too. I mean, look, this does sound incredible to someone not working in the lab every single day. But I also think about ethical issues, which I'm sure you think about a lot. And you talk to ethicists and, uh, and philosophers of biology. I think are you know some of that literature is relevant here as well. Let's say we get to the point where we're able to reset reset everyone, anyone's entire epigenome. Let's say who, and, but there's only limited number of people who who that who can get that that service is not you know democratized. How does society decide who is worthy of getting a longer an exp and we're ta not talking about a, just a little bit of a longer life? What if we get to the point where you know you know there's like two classes of humans? There are those that 
are destined, you know, to kind of live to 80, 100 and those that are going to live to a thousand, you know, what, 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 when we think about a thousand years from now, when we have, if we have these two classes of humans, if it's not completely democratized, you know, this just raises lots of ethical issues. What I'm sure you've thought, you've thought about this a bit and just wanting some of your thoughts on this. Yeah. Well, every day I think about this, there's yeah. no way I'm going to let that happen. No yeah. way. It's not going to be the future. I was talking to a movie producer yesterday about making a movie about that. Uh, it'll stay in, as science fiction if I have anything to say about it. Now, the, the treatments, often new technologies cost more. The Wright brothers flying in a plane used to be much more expensive than for the elite. Going in a rocket, of course, is, is you need a lot of money. But the idea is to bring the cost down. Um, and that's what I'm going to do. We're working now in my lab to take what is currently a gene therapy to reverse aging to make it into a pill that might cost a few cents a day. Uh, and you give that to somebody for a month, they go back five years, give it to another couple of months, they go back 10 years. And we actually now know that, at least in the mouse experiments, that, that that does reset the body. You don't need more treatment, and then you just age out again. And then eventually you'll just rinse and repeat and keep cycling back. And we don't know how many cycles you can do, but hopefully it's hundreds, we'll, we'll see. Uh, we also are excited that actually just today we got great data that showed that uh, any concerns about safety uh, were, were, were uh, not uh, valid. And so we're pushing forward quickly um, and safely as best we can into treating humans in the next couple of years. We're going to be treating um, some animals just to make sure some extra safety. We have to do that. The government requires it, of course. What about the, the two classes? Um, so, you know, I want to bring the cost down to where everybody on the planet can afford it. There's a drug called metformin, which is given to type you take 2 diabetics, that. which only... I do take that, yes, uh, because there's a lot of evidence from looking at tens of thousands of diabetics who have taken this drug that it's very, very safe um, and that it seems to protect susceptible people from cancer, heart disease, frailty, and Alzheimer's disease. So for a few cents a day, that's for something that has almost no risk. Hey, it's a no-brainer in my book. But a lot of physicians, most physicians are hesitant to prescribe a drug for type 2 diabetes to someone like me who doesn't yet have type 2 diabetes. That's another story, but I think that that's the wrong way to view medicine. But when it comes to the two societies, it could happen if the gene therapy is the only treatment that becomes available because the gene therapies are expensive. There's no denying that. But what's exciting to tell you about is that there are hundreds of labs who are now working on what we've just discovered, the ability to reverse aging by reprogramming the epigenome. Somebody is going to make a breakthrough and it's going to become very cheap to reprogram the body and hopefully very safe as well. So I'm not worried about that, that dystopian future. Um, it's very unlikely that it's going to stay expensive for long. I'm just trying to think through all the psychological implications as well. You know, a big part of people's meaning in life is their ability to struggle and um, their ability to overcome struggle. Um, I, I see that there are on the horizon maybe some pills that will mimic fasting and the kind of benefits of that. Will there be pills someday that mimic exercise? Like, are we going to make really lazy humans that live a thousand but have no meaning in their lives anymore? We have a pill that lets you learn everything immediately. I'm sure you think about this too. Do we, we don't want to strip too much of, uh, of what it means to be human, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, you're right. We, we do need some adversity. And then actually right now the best way to live a long time is to give your body some adversity. That's what exercise and being a bit hungry during the day is all about. But can we mimic that in a pill? Well, I believe we already are. Uh, I'm taking the NMN molecule, which in mice 
literally mimicked exercise. Those mice were right. running on a treadmill because they were physically fit without having exercised before. Um, I'm extremely fit on a treadmill and I don't do a lot of exercise. So, you know, at least based on an N of one experiment, which is not valid. Uh, and some friends of mine who do run marathons who have seen at least uh, these anecdotal changes in their body and their time, running times, that this, we could already be there to have these exercise uh, pills. So let's say we do have that. Um, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean it's an excuse to just sit on a couch and eat potato chips and watch movies because if you want the best bang for the buck, and we know this from the mouse, from the mouse experiments, if you run those mice that also get the pill, or the, the, the water with the molecule, they run even further. Those were the ones that, that broke the machine. Uh, we, we had a treadmill that stopped running in our lab because they just kept running. And the software wasn't written for mice to ever run more than three kilometers. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not an excuse. Um, you know, I wouldn't mind not having to exercise so much. It's, yeah. it, it, it is painful to do that. What I thought we were going to get to, Scott, was if you're going to live a long time, does that take the meaning out of life? It's to totally against what I believe in. I do not think that the agency of life and the enjoyment of life has much to do with how many years you have. Just the mere knowledge that it's finite is sufficient. Let's use an example, and I'll turn the question over to you. If you could live 200 years, would you be sitting here enjoying this conversation anyway? No, I really, I think that if you waved a magic wand or you like, and you're like, Scott, I just reset your whole epigenome, I think I actually would be more motivated and excited to do as much as I possibly can in my life. Because that means that I would have double the potential capacity to make an impact on the world. It actually would affect my psychology. It would affect my psychology. I, I think about this all the time because I think a big part of, sometimes I get sad and I, and, and not depression level, but I really do kind of feel unmotivated and sad some, some moments because there's such a bittersweet nature to the, to the briefness of it. And it's so hard for me to decide, you know, out of all the choices that I can make in a day, you know, it's, it can be overwhelming to be like, which choices do I make in this short, short life we're living that are going to have the biggest impact? It's too much stress. It would, it would alleviate that stress to a certain degree. Yeah. Well, you and I are, are not normal individuals. There, there are plenty of people who have extremely tough lives and have gone into careers uh, that are unfulfilling or, or difficult, even painful, brutal. So what I would, I've, I've said that there should be something called a skilled article where everybody gets paid to retrain for two or three years. And if life is that long, you can do that many times. And if you get into the wrong career or you're, you're born in, into poverty and couldn't get out the first 30, 40, 50 years, you have a chance at another life. And Everybody should be given a chance to do what they love and find a purpose in life. Oh, I completely agree. And, you know, th that's another thing, too. I would I would definitely, like, every 50 years, I would switch careers. I, I, I'd be a comedian. That's another dream of mine is being a stand-up comedian someday. Um, I have dreams of, you know, going back as I used to be an opera singer. Yeah, anyway, we can, we can you know, just change to have a fuller life. Hold on, you were an opera singer. Yeah, I was a professional opera singer. That actually, um, at Carnegie Mellon, I I, I did, was I studied opera, computer science, and cognitive science. <laughs> that was an interesting combination. <laughs> yeah, definitely not a normal individual. No, um, that's amazing. Have you ever sung on air? Yeah, well, I did release some some uh, tapes of some like stars from Les Mis that I sang in college and things, and I did release that um, on Twitter uh, uh, about a year or two ago, and, and people seemed to really like it, and that was fun. 
Um, yeah, I want to get. I'll check it out. I would love to. <laughs> oh yeah, I'll send you. I'll send you a recording of me singing "Stars." The really frustrating thing is there's so many things one can do in one's life, and and I always thought to myself, I I, I did I thought about it as a kid. I said I don't want to live one life. Why can't I live fifty lives in one body? You know, because it's just so short. You know, like 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 who says I have to live one life? <laughs> you know. So that's that. That's what motivated me in college. But then, when you get older, you start to realize there are constraints. <laughs> when you're when you're younger and well, more that, idealistic, maybe you don't see such constraints. But yeah, yeah. I was I was talking to this the, the sound and movie producer, a very successful one. You could argue perhaps the most successful person. And they said that they get depressed thinking that they will not achieve all of the ideas that they have in currently. That life is too short to just to make use of all of these ideas, whether it's new movies, new music, new projects. And, that, and that's sad. And that's the reason we were talking is to make, maybe we can figure something out. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, you have, you have mentioned that there's another revolution taking place um, in terms of technology and our ability to collect data. Very, very, very interested in that because that really will change the, the face of medicine, right? You know, right now you go ask your doctor for a blood test for a full panel and they'll say, well, do you have the preconditions? Do you have this, this? Then I, no, then I can't let you take the blood test. Hopefully there's a future where we're not held back by such silly rules. Well, yeah, it's all about money, really. The insurance companies don't want to pay for things that uh, are currently at present unnecessary. Now, they may ward off a disease 20, 30 years from now, but that doesn't come into the calculations, apparently. Um, so I insist that my doctor give me tests. Um, there are two ways to do it, actually. You can just badger your doctor and say, I want this and this. The problem is that you need to know what to ask for, and most people don't have time or the knowledge to do that. Uh, alternatively, and this is a in full disclosure, a company that I work with, there, at least in the US, but actually globally, you can do this. You can go to insidetracker.com. And this is a, a blood testing service that will come to your house or you go to Quest or LabCorp in the US. And they will analyze your data. A doctor will look at it. There's an AI system that will look at you compared to 100,000 other people and give recommendations as to how to optimize your health. And they also tell you biological This is there's the, their product at, uh, at Inside Tracker is called InnerAge, and but they do it from uh, they measure 43 uh, parameters in the blood, and 18 of those are known to associate with different lengths of longevity and health, and they use that to to then tell you eat this, take that, uh, do this, um, and I actually have been doing it for about 12 years. And since I started doing it, I've been getting younger every year. I'm one of the early investors in the company. So, you know, that's in full disclosure as well. It's, it's uh, clearly a conflict. But I, 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 there's nobody like it in the world that does it. So that's why I talk about them so much. Well, you have to measure things. We've been going too long just taking things and hoping for the best. And uh, so with these new tests, the one that I'm doing, the mouth swab, the drsinclair.com one, and the blood test at insidetracker.com, then we will know if supplements are helping or not, or lifestyle changes are helping. And, and that's important because we, we, we wouldn't drive a car without a dashboard. You need the feedback to know what's working. And it's also motivational, right? You're, you're the psychologist. You understand that without negative or positive feedback, people just give up eventually. Yeah, it's very true. But what, what is so what? Tell me more about the future of like data tracking. Will we be able to track on a second by second basis throughout your entire life, collect 
a multitude of data. I, I realized you had like a bio sticker at some point. Are you wearing it right now, your bio sticker? No, not today. I took it off because there was a photo shoot for my upcoming podcast that I'm, I'm putting out. But uh, the, this is normally on my chest. I would press it. It's a little inch by inch thin sticker. It's got an on button. It flashes green, connects with your phone, and is measuring the body at a thousand times per second for vibrations, for heart, uh, for temperature, for motion. And actually, motion of the body is much more informative than waving a ring or a watch around. That's not quite different. And it's also FDA approved, which is night and day compared to these other devices, which means a doctor can put one of these on you and send you home from hospital a week or two early and just monitor you at home, saving a lot of money for the hospital. And so this is going to be the future. I just have a front row seat on that. So when I talk about this, people say, oh, you know, would I want to be monitored constantly? But think about the the trade-off. What you're getting is um, like you're getting your doctor to have an alert if you're going to have a heart attack. You're being told if you are developing a, a cold or a flu, if you have an upcoming flu, you could go get medicine that will stop it from coming. They might say, oh, you're developing shingles. You need to quickly get the vaccine, which you need to take very early on in the course of that disease. We will always in the future have a guardian angel for health, as I call it, that may put things like heart attacks, um, make that make those things history. Also, it, you could imagine it's tied to an, an algorithm like Inside Tracker or, or my test, uh, the, the age test from the mouth swab. And what you're doing is having a constant view of your physiology, your age, your blood biomarkers. Eventually, these will be chips under the skin that constantly monitor you and, and you can make pills at home from a machine that you can have in your kitchen or have them airlifted by a drone in an emergency. That's the world we live in. And, and just those technologies alone will extend lifespan five to 10 years, not to mention the lifestyle changes that I talk about in my book and we touched upon today. Yeah, you know, this this idea of um, weird, I keep I keep going back to it throughout this whole, there's like a thread running through this whole podcast because I, I actually, the prior guest on my show was my colleague Colin DeYoung and the whole conversation was how the field of psychology is rethinking mental illness and rethinking um, social deviance, rethinking uh, mental illness as some sort of just deviations from normality, just like completely rethinking all that. Um, the, our, our field of psychiatry is going through a very uh, significant change right now to more dimensional classifications and not and not having social deviance as like an automatic indicator. You know, I tend to walk around. My friends think my friends make fun of me. You know, I walk around and I carry a bag with me, like even going out to the dance club and I'll bring my blood pressure monitor. I'll bring my, um, cardia, cardia EKG six lead machine. You know, now look, I, I have like the, the, the oxygen monitor and people are like, well, Scott, what the hell are you doing with all this stuff? You know, you heard that we're out at a dance, dance club. <laughs> now look, now look, I know it's, it's, it, no, like I know it's weird. I know it's, and I, I'm aware that a lot of things I do are quirky. People call me quirky. Okay, quirky. I, I appreciate that more than weird. But I just feel like there's a, a future where, like, you know, it's maybe weird now, but I, but, but you're, you're saying, you're making me feel better, first of all, that there's a future where it's going to be like, yeah, obviously we're collecting data and maybe not in such clunky ways as we have now. Hopefully it'll be more discreet, you know, you know, ways of, of, of tracking data, but that can let us know, you know, if there's going to be, you know, far, far down the horizon, a potential issue. I mean, there, there should be, we should be able to detect cancer 
much, much sooner, or the potential for uh, the growth of these certain cells uh, mutations much, much sooner than we're currently doing, right? We're gonna we're gonna look back someday and and look at the very archaic, you know, that we didn't, right? Oh, it's a, it's a revolution. It's happening right now. Uh, you can already get these tests if you know the right people. You can detect cancer years before it would even show up as anything as an illness and kill those cells with chemotherapy or an immune. Uh, you know, oncology approach. That's the future. I mean, it's it's here. The technology's here. Rolling it out is going to take a few years, but you know, in the next five years, we're going to barely recognize medicine as it, as it's practiced now. And like you say, looking back, we're going to think that the idea of going to a doctor once a year for annual physical and they ask you to cough and ask you how you're feeling—that's medieval. That's ridiculous. Um, we should always be monitored for for illness. Um, and the technology is already here. It's just a matter of rolling it out, integrating it. So you're like from the future. You're like someone from like the future who's taken a time machine and come back. And be like, oh, you're weird, David. But it's like the in the future we look at humans today as weird, probably. <laughs> like they're probably we do. Time, we right? do. I, yeah. I have not been to the future, and if I had, I would not admit it. I'd have a lot more money if I'd come from the future. Trust me. But yeah. the. The, the truth is that I spend my day imagining the future. Yeah. But what I've been trying to figure out is what's controlling all of those things. I, I like the idea that there's fundamental truths in biology, equations that are true, um, that, that a yeast cell is going to age for the same fundamental reason we age. We're all living things. What's going wrong? And what the, the main clue happened in, in 1995, actually, when we realized that the sirtuins are important for the aging process in yeast cells that we use for baking and brewing. Now, the sirtuins, they got their name because of a gene called sirtu in this yeast cell. And, it, and it's an acronym, Silent Information Regulator, number two, sir. Mm. And you might notice that I is very important, information. Mm. So the regulation of information was controlling the aging process in yeast. And what it was doing was stabilizing the epigenome, basically telling the yeast cell which genes should be on and off to be healthy. And that became dysregulated over time. And one of the drivers of that misregulation and, and mess up was DNA damage. And so now the theory, fast forward to 2021, is that we have a lot of evidence from animals, people, that this is true for ourselves, that DNA damage drives changes to the epigenome, and that leads to cells losing their identity. So what I'm saying is that at the tippy-top cause of aging, it boils down to a loss of information. I could write an equation for you. Um, it's basically the, the entropy loss of, it, of information. So what information am I really talking about? It's not the genetic information that we, that we struggle with. There are mutations for sure. Go out in the sun, you'll get mutation. But What's really driving aging, we find in my lab, is that it's the other type of information, the epigenetic information, which are the systems that read the DNA. Mm. Uh, think of it as the software of the body that gets corrupted over time. I've used the analogy that if you, people can remember a compact disc, mm. the DNA would be the music encoded and the software, the, the epigenome is the reader of that music. And over time, you get, you get scratches on the CD, so you can't read the uh, information that well. And so we've, what we've discovered was that not only can we accelerate that process by scratching up the CD or 
causing DNA damage that accelerates this process in animals and watch them get old. But we found that there's a backup copy of that information. Essentially, you can either polish the CD or another analogy would be you just reboot the software. And now the system runs like it should. And that's how we got those blind mice to see again. I mean, that's incredible. <laughs> well, often people wonder, how is it possible? How could it be so simple? Um, and it was a lot of trial and error. We failed for many years at this, but we hit upon a combination of using three genes that we turn on when we're embryos and keep us young when we're embryos, but we don't use them when we're adults. And so we turned on those three genes in the mouse's eye or in human cells or those mini brains. And we find that those three genes are sufficient to reset the age of the cell in a safe way. The cells don't become cancers. They don't lose their age back to zero. They go back about 70% in age and stop. And then we take away the system, we turn it off, and the cells and the eyes age out again. And it was that simple. And the, the cool thing about it is, A, that there is a backup copy. We didn't know where, where if there was. We still don't know where it is, by the way. We just know it exists somewhere in the cell. Um, and that it was really simple once you know how to do it. And what this really means is it's like the Wright brothers. It's, you, know, you dream a flight for 10,000 years, maybe a million years, and all you need to do is to do a bit of math, strap on an engine, do a, some wind tunnel experiments, and you do it. And once you've done it, then the, you know, the future is inevitable. It just depends on how long it takes to build a 747 and go to the moon, but you know that it's going to be possible. Well, what's the biggest hurdle right now to be, being able to, to boot up that backup again, the, the full backup of like the whole epigenome, you know? A full body reset? Yeah. I mean, that's, that, that'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, I mean, that's what we work towards in my lab every day. Uh, that this is our goal. Can I, can I like reset only like the good bits? <laughs> can we like, can we like leave out, you know, like that time I was an asshole, you know, in college? Like, can we just like not reset that one? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I think we, we can. We're going to retain our memories. We're going to retain our wisdom and our current personality. That's the prediction. But we're going to regain the ability to think uh, and store memories like, a young, like we did when we were young. And that's true for other parts of the body. Uh, muscle strength, we just achieved muscle age reversal, you know, age reversal of uh, skin. Um, so that we're ticking off the organs one by one and, and uh, tissues. But we've also done the whole animal. We can express, as you say, turn on these three embryonic genes in the whole animal. And we know for sure that it's safe. Uh, in those animals, we turned it on at high levels for a year and didn't turn it off. Usually the treatment's only four to six weeks, eight weeks at the most. But we kept it on for a year, no sign of any adverse effects in those mice. Now, the, the holy grail would be to know if those mice live longer or are they younger. We don't know because the journal and the reviewers of our paper made us kill them to, to check on the number of tumors in, inside. And it turns out they had, if anything, a trend towards having fewer tumors than the the untreated old mice. But now we're repeating that experiment. But one of the, the, the problems with current technology is evenly distributing gene therapies across the body. It tends to accumulate in the liver mainly. And so that give us another couple of years and we should be able to do that. And then we can do that experiment in a really clean way. And hopefully we can keep resetting those mice and make a mouse live for a couple of decades instead of just two years. Yeah, I, I saw with this three gene combination, you said you can reset cells by in mice. Seventy five percent was a number I heard, and and you can measure the the age of of the cell and the body. So 
like measuring that, you found that there was well, not like a full reset, but 75% ain't, ba- ain't bad. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's even more remarkable than that. So we do use mark, chemical marks that control the epigenome as a clock. Um, Stephen Horvath at UCLA is the guy that gave his name to that Horvath clock, as we call it. But uh, what what is exciting about what, what we can do is we can measure those changes with this cheek swab. But what we also know is that that's just the an indicator of what's truly going on in the cell. And that is that the music of, of our lives, like on that CD, truly the, the music of our lives gets replayed from a younger state. So what does that mean? So we've got 20,000 genes. Let's say there's, there's 2,000 that become misregulated during aging. We found that the majority of those get reset back to the, the level that they should be when the eye was young. So think about this that there are genes that come on when they shouldn't during aging in the eye and genes that got shut off when they shouldn't during aging in the eye. And that the reset restored those exactly, near exactly to where they should be. So that cell somehow knows that a gene that came on should go off and a gene that got shut off should come back on. How does it know that? We don't know that. that that's what we're chasing right now. I think that's the Nobel Prize if someone wants to get it. See, this is the thing that's very interesting. You know, some people have argued, critics have you know, said, well, there is a biological limit to how long we can live. You know, this some of this is kind of just pipe dream kind of stuff. 122 or whatever. Some people put a number on it. You've made the case that there, there's no, in theory, you know, uh, in principle, limit to how long we can live. Isn't it possible that, I mean, can't we leave open the possibility that there will be such a discovery that, that causes a real phase shift in our whole understanding of aging and really does, you know, not, not just take it an extra 15 years, but opens up a window to like every 15 years going to the doctor and like getting a, something that a therapy that makes that reverts you back 15 years. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I plan to make that future happen within our lifetimes. I mean, you're giving me chills. You're giving me chills, but it's, it, you know, what do you say? I'm sure you have you have your critics, right, who say that's impossible, impossible. <laughs> well, they used to. I used to get in trouble for, for being the guy that was quoted to say the first person to live 150 years is already born. Mm. But though they've quietened down. You know, with this paper that we just showed, you can reverse aging and reset the body. It's harder for people to argue that we, we might be experiencing a seismic shift in being able to control the aging process. I'll give you, give you an example of how things have changed. It was just five years ago that I gave a talk at Stanford University mm. and I was hesitant to use the word age reversal. It had never been said in academia, at least not amongst uh, the elite scientists. And I, I did it anyway. You know, five years later, everyone talks about age reversal. If you're not talking about aging reversal, you, you're actually getting left behind in the field. So that's a seismic change in the way we think and talk about this process. And a lot of scientists coming in from outside. There are at least four Nobel Prize winners I know that are now working on this problem. Um, and there's plans for thousands of scientists to be funded to work on this exact problem of how to reset the body. So, I, you know, I, I may not succeed. I hope I do, but it, someone's going to succeed. And it's not going to be um, another 50 years into the future. I, I would be shocked if it took that long. But we, we are in a, in a time when um, those critics are being less and less vocal. And I think it's because they've they've had a, uh, oh crap moment, which is there isn't a limit to biology. I mean, mm-hmm. no one has ever proven me wrong that there's some limit. I mean, the, the oldest person to live was 122, but that's like saying 
humans could never go faster than horseback riding. Mm. You know, of course, there's a limit until you break through the technology. You know, we can achieve anything that we set our minds to. There is no limit to human ingenuity. And there are plenty of species that live much longer than us that are warm-blooded and give milk to their babies and are conscious. And of course, talking about whales. Um, so this is not, it's not a miracle. It's not crazy science. It's not a dream. It's actually, we see it in the world around us. It's just a matter of uh, technology and investment to make it happen. And we're going to have to also rethink how we, how we perhaps live our lives and what choices we make when we're younger. Um, I'm really fascinated with this idea of antagonistic uh, pleiotropy, which uh, George Williams um, in the 50s um, came up with. Um, I'm just I'm I'm utterly obsessed with this idea, um, and I know and I know you can uh, you know what's good for you when you're young can cause problems when you're older. But is it is the reverse? I wanted to ask you is there is there a reverse kind of effect of that where sometimes we can make decisions when we're younger that are that hurt us, but that will benefit us you know when we're much older? Kind of the reverse of that. Like will we be able to make decisions and know what things that we can do that which don't seem so pleasurable in the moment, you know? Uh, for 20, 30 years when we're young, but we'll really, really save it up for us uh, to live a much longer life. Well, yeah. Well, currently, with our lifespans, um, we already know that if you are abstemious uh, when, you, when you're young, in, in your 30s for sure, maybe even in your 20s, it'll reap rewards. I'm talking about not overeating and, and even skipping meals when you're younger. That will have long-term benefits. I wish that I had gone to essentially one meal a day when I was 20. And I think that would have added five to 10 years to my current trajectory. Instead, I, I skipped breakfast in my 20s and didn't start skipping lunch fully until I was 50. Um, I did cut out desserts when I was 40. So that you can suffer a little uh, mm. when you're younger. And the science says that that will reap rewards later in life. It's true for exercise, which many people don't find pleasurable too. Uh, I think you could speak better than me about practicing good mental health as well because yeah. being stressed and releasing cortisol into the body is pro-aging and sleep. Aging and the sleep cycle are intimately tied up. The sirtuins control lifespan and your sleep patterns. So you want to make sure that they're in the best of condition. Well, that is something I did want to bring up with you because you know, I, you're in the front lines of a certain literature and I'm on the front lines of a different kind of literature. Um, and uh, the kind of literature I'm on the front lines on is showing very clearly that certain kind of meditative practices really do have an effect on epigenetics. You know, there is, there is, and to me, this, this is very interesting, the extent to which the mind can, um, can, can cause longevity. You know, in terms of kind of mind practice, I, I, of course, we know that reducing stress in general is important. That's like a trite thing to say at this point. But I'm talking about certain kind of meditation practices, you know, can uh, can can cause these kinds of epigenetic changes and um, and, and do affect our inner age. What 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 one of these tests would 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 measure as our inner age. So, you know, I, I can load you up on that literature too. I can send you papers. I'm sure you, you do. Yes, know, you, you, I'm sure you do know about, about a bunch of them. I, I, I need help all the time. There's no way any one of us can keep up with the full scientific literature. So we'll, we'll support each other. And I, I need to learn more about uh, the effects of the brain on, on human aging. Now, what I can tell you is that in mice, you can manipulate parts of the brain. There's the hypothalamus, which is at the base of the brain that you actually can, that is sufficient by reducing inflammation in that organ 
to extend the lifespan of the animal, proving, at least in mice, and I would say very likely in us, that the brain is a central hub for longevity. Um, and I'm also ex- very curious about the results where if you look epidemiologically at lives, lives of people that live a long time, what do they have in common? And one common thread in the study at Harvard that was done since the 1930s was that having a loyal, trustworthy partner was, was very important for longevity. And that we can only guess, but I'd be curious as to what you think might be going on there. So, so two things that, that are really incredible when you look at their effects on uh, mortality rates um, and actually do a better job predicting mortality than all cause mortality of physical ailments combined are loneliness. You know, loneliness is, 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 is a bigger killer than obesity, you know, and uh, high blood pressure. That's fascinating. But also um, the words that you use on Twitter. So I don't know if you're aware of that recent research, but there's this whole team when I was at University of Pennsylvania, they're right down the hall from me. So we would always talk to each other, the World Wellbeing Project. And they were able to look at um, county by county data on uh, whether and classify whether or not the language that people used on Twitter um, uh, predicted uh, mortality rates of, of uh, a county by county level. And they found that uh, negative, like curse words and um, negative thinking and, uh, and, 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 uh, and lots of like angry, aggressive kind of language was a better predictor of uh, mortality rates than the entire, everything combined, you know, physical. And, and this is, I think, really dramatic. And, and I can send you this paper. Um, it's a really, uh, I think, a profound paper suggesting that our kind of our positive thinking our kind of um you know the contents of our mind may have a much bigger effect on activating some of these genes than than we have ever given them credit for in the past yeah it'd be interesting to see how how we could test that hypothesis because it's it's hard often to separate associations um, and make sure it's a cause and effect this is where my mind goes once i hear something of course like that. Of course. Can, can we give can we give mice uh, cell phones and see what they tweet and uh, see how long they live? <laughs> well, this is the thing: is that there's some things with mice we can't ask mice to meditate. You know, there's some things that we just can't do in mice. We can just have to do in humans. But it's just very, very clear that you know, having feeling like you're socially supported, feeling like you're valued, that you have some meaning in your life, some purpose to your life. I mean, there's the classic. There's a classic study with uh, people in elderly homes um, by a Harvard researcher, Ellen Langer, um, finding that just giving older people uh, a pot, a, a plant to take care of, um, they lived longer than the control condition of those that weren't given this thing to, to take care of. So things like that do suggest that uh, the mind is so integrably intertwined with, with our uh, mortality. Well, if there's one thing I've done well in my mental state is to focus on the positive. Uh, every day I wake up and I'm excited to be alive. Um, I'll write to people through text wishing them a great day. Uh, it's a it's a really positive world that I live in. And it wasn't always like that. Like I said, when I was a teenager, I even had suicidal thoughts. It was not worth living. And I've just flipped that around and said that you know, I've seen my mum die. Today's not so bad. Just be positive, and uh, and it works. You really have to have. Often you have to work at it because I think the mind likes to foment bad thoughts, but uh, you can get over it. But I'm living proof that that's possible. 
Mm, so hopeful. Um, I think I'll end this interview today with this, um, this tweet, a tweet that you wrote. Um, to experience happiness, stop loving material things, love living things, especially ones that love you back. You know, I think that, you know, one of the, one of the tragedies is that we have extra lifespan, but, but, uh, levels of depression and anxiety and loneliness are skyrocketing. So just extending human life is not going to be the answer. We need to, we need to work together, brother. Psychologists need to work together with biology geneticists, um, to have a whole, whole body approach, in my opinion. And I just love the work that you're doing. It's so revolutionary. I want you to keep dreaming. And, uh, you know, do you have any parting sort of want to talk about any like upcoming exciting collaborations? I saw you're doing something with Stephen Fry. I don't know if you could talk about that. I saw you're starting a podcast, <laughs> which looks great. Do you want to talk about any of this stuff? <laughs> uh, well, Stephen will kill me if I, if I talk about it, but <laughs> okay. it, it is something that, that you would not expect the, the two of us to do together. Amazing. Uh, so I'm excited about that. I love comedy. The, uh, <laughs> it, yeah, I, I know you're, mm. you, uh, you're good at it. The, uh, I can talk about so that the company that I'm building to democratize wellness and allow people to, to know their age and, and reverse it, slow it down, that I'm working furiously on. Um, I'm excited about um, the biotech companies that are working on these drugs for the, the eye and the brain for the rest of the body. And, you know, stay tuned. Hopefully one of them, if not all, are going to have a big breakthrough. So it's a, it's a very busy life. I've got my second book that I'm writing and my podcast I'm going to put out uh, in an eight-part series that's going to cover the, the big questions that everyone uh, who's read my book and even those who haven't who followed me on Twitter are begging me to get into details on it. There, there's, a, there's a real thirst for facts now because it, it's hard to know who to trust. Most of the information is biased or complete lies. And guys like you, uh, Andrew Huberman, mm. myself, Lex Friedman. There's a bunch of us, Matt Walker now for sleep. Uh, women, we, need, we definitely need more women scientists yeah. to step up. You know, reach out to me. I, I know how to do this. Um, I helped Andrew build up his, and now he's helping mm. me build up mine. Wonderful. This is a future where I'm excited because instead of hearing about science through a newspaper, which used to be mangled and twisted and often uh, negative and, and often e equal-handed, which is not true for science. Um, the public can hear directly from us scientists who read the literature and even up to date can say, you know, it just came out yesterday. Instead of the public waiting 10, 20 years to actually learn about what's happening at the forefront. It's an exciting future. And I'm, I feel really blessed to be able to be part of that and use my communication skills to, to help people live longer and better lives. Yeah. I, I'll leave by saying I, I feel great gratitude that my existence intersected with your existence in this brief period of the universe history. It was a really wonderful uh, privilege for me to talk to you today, David, and I, I, I encourage you to keep dreaming and keep doing great research. So thank you for being on my podcast today. Thanks, Scott. Well, likewise, I want to say you know, what you do is great. I followed you and I just adore what you do and I know a lot of people appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity.
Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainer, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.